Hi, everybody. It's Father Tony here, and we're joined once again by Jonathan Stewart, my co-host. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. And we are going to continue our conversation with Deacon John DiGilio, who will actually be Father John DiGilio by the time this comes out. So uh, welcome back, Father, and thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. My pleasure. So we talked a lot about uh, Gnosis and Enlightenment in the, well, not a lot, I guess, as much as you can in about 15 minutes, but we talked a little bit about Gnosis and Enlightenment in the video portion. We're going to get into some more detail about that. But before we do, I'd actually like to ask you a little bit of uh, personal questions, if you don't mind. Um, sure. People, uh, people are probably wondering, hey, you got this uh, guy who's dressed like a priest who is uh, also a Buddhist and, and uh, practices Hinduism. What's the deal with that? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, it may sound to people like I have too much going on, but again, you know, for those who are who have tuned in and seen the first part of uh, the the topic tonight, one of the things we talked about is that with Gnosticism, it's all about personal experience. It's very unique to you, and you basically have the ability to create and inform your own path. So one of the things when I'm often talking to people who are new to Gnosticism is I tell them that if you're looking for us to tell you that mm. there is a set canon of things you must read or a set you know, list of experiences that you must have, you've come to the wrong faith system. Uh, we really do look to you to, again, keep yourself open to those experiences. And that's been my own personal progression for a very long time now. Obviously, I was born and raised uh, something other than Gnostic. Um, I had not even heard the word uh, until I was well through uh, college. But in college was when I first began to question my own belief system and what I was doing. Uh, I was finding that it was not fulfilling to me. In college was also when I was beginning to experience uh, all kinds of new things as well. And I'm talking about religion here, mind you. Um, but, you know, just to add a little levity to that. But, you know, I was taking courses in philosophy and courses in theology and world religions. And you know, I was being exposed to things I had never heard of and making a lot of mental notes about these various systems that I was studying. But I was never one to rely on book learning, even as a kid. So what I knew theoretically was great, but I was also one of those people that regardless of what anybody tells you, I needed to experience it for myself. So not long after getting out of college, that was what I did. I began to go out there and visit different uh, faith groups and temples, you name it. I was open to those experiences. And every time something came along that lended itself well to what I was already doing, or if it just felt right, I stuck with it. And that led me at one point to, in addition to my Christian leanings, um, taking the vows of a lay Buddhist, for example, in the Soto Zen tradition, a tradition that I still hold very dear and practice um, on a daily basis. The same thing is true of some of the Hindu practices uh, that I encountered, especially um, I had a lot of experience with folks um, in the Vaishnava lineages. Um, obviously, that has to do a lot with uh, Vishnu and in particular Krishna. So having those experiences only informed my practice. So maybe you can call me a cafeteria spiritualist. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I've picked up things along the way. Um, if the jello's good, why well, pass it up sort of thing? But at the same time, I think it's made me a much better practitioner for it. I've never felt more secure in my own beliefs and practices. So I definitely can't fault that kind of a path. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of that in Gnosticism in general. I mean, there is a very strong overlap, as we mentioned uh, earlier in the video portion, that you know between the kind of concepts that exist in Gnosticism and in some of the Eastern traditions. And so I, I think that you'll find a lot of um, Buddhist Gnostics. Uh, in fact, 
what is it that uh, Monsignor Stratford said? Um, Catholic on the outside, Buddhist on the inside, quotes a lot of dead Greek guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's pretty much what we do. Yeah, I, I think that there's a there's a value in finding things that work, even if it's outside of you know the quote unquote Christian Gnostic tradition that we belong to. Um, and I, that's one of the strengths I think of of our church in particular that uh, you know you can have all of these different practices and traditions coexisting together and, and mm -hmm. working well together. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, I've never thought it was an accident that there are so many. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, just like anything else in life, you're surrounded by all of the tools that you need. You know, it's up to you to figure out which ones you're ultimately going to use to get where you're going. But there's no reason in a world as diverse as ours is that you should ever have to hunger for those sorts of things or feel like there's a dearth mm -hmm. of, you know, opportunities to help you grow spiritually um so i've never taken it as being an accident that things are so different around the world i've always looked at it as being more of a of a smorgasbord and a beautiful one at that mm -hmm. um is it the uh the baha'i uh tradition i think that they say that each uh in each culture in each generation a, a teacher will come and appear in the form that is most likely to make an impact on on that particular culture at that particular yes. time and i always found that to be pretty nice too absolutely yeah. uh deacon the um oh sorry i'm getting an echo i don't know if you guys can hear that oh. uh in the, the buddhist tradition there's this um or buddhist traditions mm -hmm. uh in some of the buddhist schools there's this idea about enlightenment that when it happens there's a break between the old personality and the new personality, uh, a permanent change. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, if you agree with that, if you see that applying to Gnosticism in some way, can, can we be reborn in this lifetime to a state that is in many ways completely different from the one that we, we currently know and lasts until the, uh, you know, the day we die, perhaps afterwards? Mm, that's a good question, Jonathan. And again, it really depends on, on how you look at it. Um, obviously, the ultimate goal um, within Buddhism, and I can, t again, talk only from my Soto Zen lineage. When we talk about Satori, you know, that's the ultimate moment, for example, when you make what you, what you termed as that break. You've hit that point where not only have you had a moment of enlightenment, but you are enlightened. The soul does not need, or I shouldn't say soul, but you know, you do not need rebirth. You do not need further experience um, to break the cycle. But along the way, you still have these moments of enlightenment that aren't so final, and every one of them transforms you. I think in many ways it's, you know, nothing more than maybe an allegory on life itself. Every time you have any kind of a profound experience, you're changed. Even if you refuse to admit it, others are going to see it in you. When we talk spiritually, of course, it becomes perhaps even more profound because it's something that's really deep, something that's really personal. Um, same thing with you know with the Hindus. There are moments when you have those uh, that moksha, that moment where you feel the very presence of God. It's like a one-on-one -on -one thing. You've touched the divine. You've manifested it. Uh, within our Gnostic beliefs, you have those moments where again you see through the illusion, and even though those moments may be temporary, you never forget that moment. It somehow changes you, it transforms you. And I think, again, the, the, the telling characteristic of all of these systems is you can have these moments of satori, you can have these moments of enlightenment or moksha, you can have these moments of gnosis over very long periods of time. 
you know, if you do believe in reincarnation, it can take lifetimes to get to the point of breaking that cycle. But every one of those moments transforms you. It's like a step on the path or, a, you know, a rung on the ladder, if you want to say it that way. So I think it happens to us constantly. Many times we don't even realize it. That actually leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I think that in, in <laughs> with the danger of uh, starting to have some, like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin arguments, um, the, the traditions uh, try and define these spiritual experiences in a number of different ways. And, of course, it's difficult using, uh, you know, human language to, to define these kind of spiritual experiences. But um, when we talk about in Gnosticism specifically, we kind of talk about two separate stages. And again, uh, you know, to use uh, to, to say that all of the Gnostics agree on anything is a, is, is a, a bit of a stretch. But I, I think generally we talk to, about to say that two Gnostics agree on anything uh, is right. a bit of a stretch. No, I disagree, and let me tell you why. <laughs> no, um, I, I think that we talk about gnosis and theosis as kind of two different mm -hmm. random Greek words for concepts that. Uh, that are hard to describe. And um, can you tell us a little bit about how you see those two um, concepts and, and maybe any parallels you might see in, in the Eastern traditions? Well, that's a very interesting um, question because I'm one of those that, here we go with, you know, different Gnostics again. <laughs> I have a hard time with my own thinking on Gnosis and Theosis, for example. Part of me wants to say that much like in Buddhism, you reach that point where there is a final break. Mm -hmm. Theosis to me has always been that final moment in the more Christian or Gnostic sense, mm -hmm. if you will. That's the moment when you become one with divinity, whether again, you want to say you've re-entered the Pleroma, you know, whatever it may be, that's that final moment. But I know that many others will say, but really it's no different than Gnosis. You can have these mo little moments of theosis along the way, um, you know, where you have, again, that feeling that you've somehow been united. Part of me wants to sympathize with that, but I'm going to be honest. I've always used theosis as being that, that final stage, as you said, you know, we, I look at it as being in stages. So Gnosis itself, you have those moments when you see through the illusion and you know that your divinity is there, or, you know, um, you know that again, you have this divine origin, this, this divine spark, but theosis is that moment that we are all uh, working toward that moment of rejoining or, you know, being brought back into final union. So again, I know somebody's probably throwing something at a screen somewhere saying, that's not it at all. Um, but we can disagree on that. I think the same is true in other systems. It might not be as heavily focused upon as we often do. And that is something that I will point out here is when I was studying Buddhism and more active in my Buddhist sanghas and I was attending um, Hindu temples more regularly, there wasn't so much the, you know, the more scientific, <laughs> I guess I could say the more analytical yeah. approach to looking at what was going on. It was more of a simplistic experience it, try to describe it, knowing that we can't describe it. Um, but I have found that, you know, those who are more in tune with the Christian side of things, we like to get into those little kernels. You know, if we can break it down, we will, um, you know, to the point of being able to say, well, you know, this is the first stage of, of whatever. So, but I do believe it's there in the others as well. Like I said, we may look at it in Hinduism as being the, the cycle of birth and death, the idea that you progress to higher states throughout that cycle. I know there are Buddhist traditions that actually name the various states mm -hmm. that you will um, reincarnate into, uh, you know, as you progress or fall backwards. So it's definitely there. I think, and this is again, me speaking from personal experience, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we dwell on these things. And this is what my 
my Buddhist teacher used to tell me, you know, if you're spending all of your time trying to figure out if you're a hungry ghost born into the world of animals or somehow entering the Bodhisattva plane, you're not practicing, you know, the way you're supposed to be. You're not doing the work. You're spending too much time on the more trivial things. So that's often my fear with Gnosticism is many people will raise these questions. Well, where am I and what does this mean? And, you know, we start to get down into the details and then our practice begins to suffer. Our openness begins to suffer. I have a theory about that. Um, no. I, yeah, I do. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, I think that because we don't have that tradition of... Um, uh, of the spiritual teacher uh, kind of model, the the, the teacher-student model uh, in the West, I think that we don't. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very individualistic kind of a, uh, of an approach, and the easy part of that individualistic kind of approach is to define things. Uh, you know, I, I think that if um, like you look at at, uh, at monasticism in the West, right? When you become a monk or a nun in, in a traditional monastery kind of a setting, there's a plan. You, you, know, you have the prayers and you have the, the, the specific times of day that you, you say your prayers and you do your work and, and all that stuff. And um, for those of us who don't have that kind of a luxury, uh, the, the easy thing to do is just to say, okay, well, I'm here and I should be there and let's talk about how we get from here to there. But you don't have somebody saying, yes, but now is time, it's time to pray. And, uh, and that's the, the discipline that it takes that we all <laughs> struggle with uh, all the time is just to... Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, also to go in line with that, when you look at esoteric or mystical groups, I guess I should say, from other... Uh, faith systems, there's a lack of what I will call uh, the degree path, mm. if you will, that we often see in systems or groups that are more informed by the Christian presence. And that's not a knock on any group, but, you know, when I'm active in Buddhist and Hindu circles, nobody ever comes up to me and says, well, you know, I'm a third degree arahat. Mm -hmm. It, it, doesn't exist. I mean, it's, it's a foreign idea, you know, or I've progressed to this point. It's not something that we talk about um, in those groups. Yet any of the Christian affiliated groups, you know, we love our degrees and titles and, you know, we want to give people awards, um, you know, for the things that they do. And again, it's maybe it's more cultural. I, I don't know. But that is something that always strikes me is that that's a huge difference between what I see in the Eastern mysticism and the Western mysticism. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because my, my main exposure to Buddhism is, is Shambhala, which is a, a Tibetan Sangha, but it was, it was formulated for a Western audience in the 70s. And it actually uses a level system that's kind of yes. similar to the degrees. So I wonder if that is because it, it's... it's um, it's a form of Buddhism that is very authentic, but uh, is um, very kind of formulated for the Western mind. So I think that's a very interesting point that you raised, where you're talking about that's not really in the East. And I'm like, oh, I do know a form of Buddhism that has something similar, but it was one that was specifically made for the West. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I think you're really onto something there with that. I don't know if it's the analytical, logical degree class system. I'm not quite sure why we need these degrees and levels in our, in our cultural understandings of religion. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot to me like um, uh, martial arts traditions. I mean, I don't know what martial arts traditions are like in, in you know, the, the parts of the world where they actually come from, but in America, you know, you've got your brown belts and your white belts and your black belts and all that kind of thing, and that it seems to be kind of, uh, and maybe that's something more, maybe that's more objective. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, look at it this way. I, I'm Sadly, I'm not good with movie quotes, but if you remember the Karate Kid, what was Mr. Miyagi's answer to um, Ralph Macchio asking him what belt he was? <laughs> you know, Wasn't it like J.C. Penny or Kmart or something oh, okay. was his answer? <laughs> Yeah, I, I Sorry, it's been twenty years since I've seen. I know, it, me I, too. Yeah, 
That that does make me want to see Karate Kid again. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a perfect classic example for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess a question for, for both of you. Do we... The, a lot of the main practices in modern Christian mysticism and Gnosticism do have influence from Buddhism. It, like the, the two I can think of are, are John Main's um, uh, Christian Meditation and uh, Centering Prayer, both of which were basically made by Catholics in monasteries, but they brought in Buddhists to consult. You know, like Centering Prayer was made partly with a collaboration drawing from ancient Christian sources like the Desert Fathers and Mothers, but also bringing some Buddhists in and being like, what do you think about this? Any feedback? So I, I guess my question is, do we do we actually have to borrow and be inspired by Buddhism for our Western esoteric and mystical paths? Because there is that kind of blank, there is a kind of break, or should we be looking towards stuff like Kabbalah, the Desert Fathers, and um, you know Saint Ignatius of Loyola? Should we should we shut the cafeteria down and only serve that food, or or is there t too much of a uh, too much of an emphasis on the exoteric of the West that we ha that we really do have to borrow from the East? Hmm. Father Tony, do you want to go first on that one? Sure, why not? You know, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? Um, <laughs> I actually don't think that uh, that you need to go through Buddhism to get to a Christian cont contemplation or even a, a Christian meditative um, kind of thing. And this is, I have no data or history or facts to back this up. This is just my own personal opinion. Um, I, I think that if you look at uh, some of the things that uh, Jesus said, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I don't know chapter and verse, but where he says, you know, um, he, you, you need to go into your closet and pray, you know, and, and uh, I, I, think that, I think that a lot of what Jesus is teaching in both the canonical Gospel sources and some of the Gnostic sources as well is, a, you know, pretty much a meditative practice. It is a... a you know, a, a, a silence, uh, you know, a praying with the heart kind of a thing that um, that would be easily recognizable to any uh, Buddhist meditation practitioner as well. Um, I just think that it's just kind of such a universal human experience of, hey, my, I, I've tried to stop thinking. I'm still thinking. Why am I still thinking? I'd like to stop thinking. You know, and there you get meditation out of that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, I would I would agree with that 100%, Father Tony. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it's a much more subtle, you know, do we need to look to these things? No. If going to your closet and sitting there and, and praying is what works for you, that's what you should be doing, obviously. But I think what we have to remember is that we're a lot of people on a very small planet and regardless of where you are you know in the world there are certain shared experiences that mm -hmm. all humans you know go through we all know fear we all know hunger we know joy it doesn't matter who you are where you are these are things that you know and although our languages and our cultures may differ as to how we express those things we're still expressing the same things so as as Father Tony said, you know, when you talk about something one way, usually there's something in there that somebody from a completely different culture or um, belief system may understand mm -hmm. just from seeing it or hearing it. Um, music is always my favorite example. You don't have to speak the language to listen to a song and get a good understanding for what it's about. Um, again, because there are certain universal experiences that express themselves. Um, 
through these things. And I think it's very much true of our faith systems. So, you know, scholars will spend a lot of time trying to make those connections. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite one is always the idea of the crucifixion. We could argue for days over, you know, which faiths had somebody crucified, which faiths had, you know, them on a cross versus a post versus, you know, mm -hmm. we really, and then we start to play these games. Well, who had it first? So obviously there must have been somebody borrowed something. Well, maybe, you know, again, we're a lot of people on a small planet, cross pollination is going to happen, but there isn't a human alive who doesn't know what sacrifice is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we often, again, for the sake of our own edification, we like to dig too deep. It makes us feel better. It makes us look good. If that brings people comfort, then absolutely go for it. Um, but again, I stick to my to my story. You know, nothing is accidental here. Um, the world is as diverse as it is for a purpose, and everything we need is right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, let's take a little bit of a, of a hard right turn here. Buddhism talks a lot about suffering, and um, Gnosticism does as well. And, uh, and I, I'd, I'd like to kind of unpack a little bit about uh, both of those traditions and how they see suffering and the, uh, the problem of evil and all that stuff. Let's start with Buddhism. Can you talk about how Buddhists uh, talk about suffering? I can, and again, it's going to depend on you know which uh, system you're looking at it from, but there are certain basic truths that underlie it all, and that is, you know, Buddhists will, you'll often hear Buddhists say that life is suffering or everything is suffering. And I remember I once had a Christian teacher of mine actually pull me aside one day and say, how can you be part of, you know, a system that constantly teaches you that they're suffering? and that you're suffering. And all I could do was look at her and say, have you read the Bible lately? <laughs> um, but, you know, the difference here is many people take that to mean that Buddhists have this idea that we're constantly in pain or something. No, everything is suffering because it's impermanent. Mm. Even your best experiences are going to be fleeting. And you have the choice of living from experience to experience, or understanding that, you know, this is simply the way it goes. There are going to be highs and lows and joys, and you're always going to long for the things that you can't have or that you may have enjoyed in the past. It's normal. It's not necessarily that we're saying it's bad, but it's normal. This is the state of the world. This is the state of human existence. And when you can come to terms with that, you can actually find the greater joy in the things that you're doing. You know, understand that things will be different from one moment to the next, that yes, you've been on a high, a new high will come, but there will be lows at the same time. So when you hear a Buddhist say things about suffering, again, it's not this idea that the world is so heavy and so dark. And that's often the problem, and maybe we'll get into this later, but I get so angry when you go to something like Wikipedia, and the first thing they talk about with Gnostics is, you know, it's this tradition of people who see the world as an evil place. And yeah, world-hating dualists, that's us. Exactly, world-hating dualists. And yeah. I've known a couple. You know, <laughs> they're out there, God bless them. Um, but I haven't known many. In fact, I know more Republicans that are probably world-hating dualists than I do Gnostics. <laughs> um, I know, bad joke at a bad time, but it had to be said. <laughs> Have but, you seen Facebook lately? Uh, <laughs> exactly. You, where I'm coming from in this is I think, again, that we, we tend to um, focus on these things without really understanding what it means. And I think the same is true of, of Gnosticism. But yes, you know, in Buddhism, we do believe that everything is impermanent. Everything is temporary. And thus it always comes with a sense of loss and a sense of longing. You know, is there greater suffering? Sure. Pain, fear, hunger, some of the things I mentioned earlier. Um, and unfortunately for some people, those are constants. Uh, it's a travesty, but it's also life. And we need to do our best 
you know, to prevent that from happening. We need to minimize that suffering. But the idea that suffering is going to go away in this lifetime um, just is a foreign concept. In defense of the world-hating dualists, I think that uh, <laughs> I, I think it's an important stage, for Gnostics anyway, I, I think that it's an important stage to experience that, um, you know, a lot of what we're taught in, you know, in Christian countries anyway is that the world is perfect and it was created exactly perfectly for us. Um, to have, to, to go through that experience of, oh, well, maybe it isn't perfect and maybe it's actually awful and, uh, and to look at it through that lens for a while. And I think most people, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, but I think most people come out through the other side of that and have a more kind of balanced, nuanced uh, view of creation and, uh, and the demiurge in, in our system anyway. And, and I think that that's an important stage in, in, a, in some of the spiritual development. I agree completely, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about... Um, actually, all right, so I wanted to talk about some practices that uh, the various traditions do, but before we do that, actually, uh, something that you said earlier sparked uh, a, a question in my mind about the role of the soul, because uh, you mentioned some, some things about the soul in the Hindu traditions. Um, as a, as a you know, theology geek, I'm interested to see how various traditions view the various parts of the human being uh, in, in, the, in the spiritual sense. What is the view of the soul in these, uh, the Buddhist and Hindu traditions? Oh, boy. Um, Just as, as quickly as you can. You I was going to say, open a can of worms there. <laughs> uh, many Buddhist traditions will not talk about the soul. Um, they just don't. In Soto Zen, it was not something that we ever spoke of. It's not that we said it didn't exist. It wasn't something on which we dwelled because we just didn't know. Um, in the Hindu groups that I've worked with, specifically, again, the Vaishnavas, um, what turned me on to that system early on is the idea of a super soul, which to me sounds very much like the sacred flame or the divine spark, mm -hmm. if you will, that we Gnostics say is in everyone. And the super soul is just that. It's that piece of God that exists in everyone, every creature, um, if you will. So it's interesting that, you know, in many ways, Gnostics and Hindus have something very similar in that regard. We use different terminology, but for me, when I tell, when I talk about the divine spark, I'm essentially talking about what I consider the super soul. That's that piece of, of divinity that came with each one of us um, when we came into being. Mm -hmm. I like the, um, the, the teachings uh, from Gurdjieff in the fourth way about the soul, uh, that you, there is that kind of spirit, as what I call it, but you know, whatever you want to call that, that, um, that ties us in with the divine and with everybody else and everything else. But then there is the, the seed of a soul in each one of us that is kind of the animating principle, but has the potential to become, you know, so much more. Um, I think that uh, he even goes so far, Gurdjieff would even go so far as to say, and I, I haven't studied him, but this is just from doing the show for so long, <laughs> that... Um, you don't really even have an immortal soul until you uh, practice enough and you reach a certain stage. So you have the potential for an immortal soul, but you're not born mm -hmm. with an immortal soul. I just, uh, you know, again, in this, uh, the way that the West uh, overanalyzes things maybe, but it's, it's a useful symbol for me. Yeah, we're overdue uh, yeah. for a, uh, a Gurdjieff show. Yeah. Which we somehow have have yet to have. The, well, we've um, talked about him a little yeah, bit. The, yeah, yeah. The more. sorry, I'm still getting feedback. Um, <laughs> sorry, nobody wants to listen to my voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not getting it here, so it's just your okay, problem. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah, but I'm getting it getting it back into my ears, and it's horrible. And now I know why people don't like me. Uh -huh. That's what I sound like. <laughs> um, just the, the soul in Buddhism. Uh, yeah, it, it's really funny because if there's I know there's definitely some Buddhist schools that are very strongly teach there's no such thing as the soul, particularly Western schools that are trying to get over this assumption that we have. But other schools of Buddhism talk about the Buddha nature 
which mm -hmm. we all possess and everything in creation possesses and it's actually the true reality behind everything and I'm like, that's a sacred flame. You can't fool me. <laughs> and they'll be like, you know, it's not a soul, and it's not a universal soul. But it, um, again, uh, just this, this different language. Um, I was say, it sure sounds I, like one, though. <laughs> it sure sounds like one. If it and walks like a soul and quacks like a soul. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think sometimes in the West, this, there is this emphasis uh, sometimes in, in Buddhist teachings they overemphasize there's no such thing as a soul to get over the dictionary definition of the soul that we carry around in us. Just like Father Tony was, was just talking about that more uh, complicated view of the soul in the Gurdjieff work or in Gnosticism where there's soul, mind, body. You know, normally in the West, we kind of think, well, mind and soul must be the same thing, right? I'm just I, I'm just a ghost that's driving this machine around. There's, <laughs> there's only mind and body. Um, well, I just, you know, I had a wonderful Buddhist teacher when I first started, and I remember asking specifically about the role of the soul, and she refused to tell me there was no soul. No matter how much I tried to, you know, pin her down on this, she would just say, well, you know, I don't know, you know, if there is a soul. I'm not sure I've ever experienced one or seen one. But then she would turn to me and say, but does it help you? maintain yeah. your vows you know does it help you along your bodhisattva path and if the answer is yes well then fine you have a soul <laughs> right yeah that that is that is an important an important thing to remember um is these experiential uh and what does it actually matter and these are just words for concepts that none of us could actually talk about anyways however still subscribe to the show even though we can't put any of this in the words. Oh, yeah, we're really good at talking about nothing for two and a half hours every week. <laughs> How many angels can dance <laughs> on the head of that pin? Um, uh, Deacon John and, and Father Tony, I want to ask you both. So the, the dangers on the spiritual path, more specifically, not the spiritual path in general, but this contemplative path, this, this path where we are sitting down with just our minds and we're doing something like centering prayer or meditation or sitting meditation or chanting, you know, it's, you're not, you're not praying. You don't have that as we know it, right? You're not, in, you're not filling your minds with these words. What, what are some of the dangers on, on the spiritual path and specifically this more contemplative path? Well, I personally have always I look at it being, you know, there's there's two types of dangers um, on the spiritual path. Obviously, there are a lot of external dangers. Um, you know, if you believe in the world of illusion, for example, then the world of illusion is not one to be forgotten. So, you know, there are going to be all kinds of external obstacles and detachments and distractions and uh, things that are going to get in your way. But that's only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is what's happening inside you. And, you know, I often, uh, boy, people that I, that I know just personally, um, we're a generation of, of self-diagnosers. <laughs> you know, as soon as you start feeling unwell, you've got WebMD and all those other sites where you can go and begin looking up your symptoms. And yes, this, is must, this must be um, what you have. I think we do the same thing with our spiritual practices. You know, we began the discussion today by talking about what's the point of Gnosticism? You know, what is Gnosis? What is Theosis? How do you know if you've had a moment of enlightenment? When you start dwelling on these things, that to me is a very dangerous thing to do because you get to the point where you begin to, again, self-diagnose. And for many of us, you may sit there and say, oh, you know, was that a moment of gnosis? And if it was, it was great. Mm. And then we move on. But you also have others that are into this idea that once you've had it, you know, my as my again, my Buddhist teacher used to tell me, if you run into somebody that tells you they're the enlightened one mm -hmm. or that they're an enlightened being, keep going. <laughs> um, because chances are the only one to whom they are enlightened is themselves. Yeah. And, you know, that's the human condition. And I see it uh, when you're dealing with people who are new to Gnosticism. 
I will often have people ask me, well, you know, what happened when you were doing the logo service? You know, they're always looking for those little signs and symbols that something's happening. It's, you know, the whole watched pot boiling water type thing. You spend all of your time trying to watch for a sign. You're probably not doing what you're supposed to be doing to get there in the first place. I think that is the biggest danger because that is human nature. You know, we want to see the fruits of our labors. Um, again, I take it to the whole idea of degree systems and awards. You know, we want to be recognized. We want to be, um, you know, rewarded for what we're doing. And when we, do, when we don't get that, we get frustrated. Yet at the same time, when we get it, it becomes all about us not so much about what we were doing. So I think it's a very dangerous um, path to walk, a very difficult path to walk, but it's the only path. So there's, there's really no way around it. If you know, we all go through those moments. Um, but to me, that is the biggest danger is I think people cling to this need to see something immediate. We're an instant gratification, um, you know, race. That's how we are as, as, as beings. And we struggle with it, but it also remains one of our greatest foes, whether we're talking spiritually or in any, any other sense. I, I think it was, I, I don't remember exactly, I think it was probably Father Thomas Keating. Um, it was one of the centering prayer uh, founding uh, people, but um, he said, uh, you know, the, the point of centering prayer is not to experience visions or, you know, to become enlightened or anything like that. The purpose of centering prayer is to do centering prayer, and the um, and and he he gave an example that has stuck with me, or whoever it was gave an example that has stuck with me. He says, even if you should see a vision of the the Virgin Mary during your uh, your your centering prayer, you say to her, "Not now, dearie, I'm meditating." <laughs> so yeah, that, I, and and that's that's the thing you know that I, I think that's what you're talking about the the you'll see. You'll see things that appear to be spiritual rewards that aren't really spiritual rewards. They're just more distractions. And it's very and difficult to know the difference. I was going to say, I like to actually stir the pot when that starts happening. You know, somebody will say, well, I had a vision. And somebody will say, I saw a sign. And it's sort of like, well, I broke wind. <laughs> um, you know, just because you want to, you know, sort of stop it, you know, cut that snowball off, because then you get those who did experience something, you know, they're all of a sudden positive, they're on the right path, and those who may not have are suddenly thinking they've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not a discussion that anybody should be getting into. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting, I hate to say it, it's almost a conundrum because like I said, it is, it's human nature. This is the sort of thing we look for. Um, the question is, is are we strong enough to realize that it's all open to interpretation and that the important thing is that we keep working towards progress? Mm -hmm. There's a, uh, a lot of fun correspondences that happen between uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin and Jean-Baptiste Willermose back in the late 1700s. Um, who are that they were um, pioneers of, of what what we now call Martinism, but uh, um, apparently John uh, Baptiste Willermose was a bit of uh, a bit spiritually dense, uh, <laughs> which is how I like to describe myself as well. Uh, and he he had some trouble with the the practices and the kind of milestone experiences that he was trying to reach through this one particular uh, uh, tradition. Um, of, uh, of Martinism, uh, or what would become Martinism. And uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin had to keep writing him letters saying, no, don't worry, you'll get there, it, it's okay, just keep going. <laughs> you know, it, everybody has this trouble at first, it happens to a lot of guys, don't worry about it. And, uh, and it, 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 you know, it just, it's, the same, it's the same thing that happens to all of us. And um, some, people, uh, some people get it quickly and some people never get it. Mm-hmm. It's like being a kid when you first learn how to roller skate or ride a bicycle. You know, you're trying to go in one direction, but what are you doing the whole time? You're turning around to mom and dad saying, hey, how am I doing? Yeah, yeah. You know, you need mom to stand there and say, you know, just turn around and keep <laughs> going. 
Yeah. So let's talk about some practices. Um, obviously, meditation is big uh, for for Buddhists, and uh, so what? As a as a Soto Zen practitioner, what does um, what does the meditation practice kind of look like? Uh, as a Soto Zen practitioner, um, I sit zazen, which is seated, you know, meditation on a cushion. It's done in silence. Um, it's done facing a wall so that there, you know, you're working hard to minimize uh, distractions. And well, I guess that's a, you know, that's the heart of it. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I will say is that it's not about trying to silence the mind. Uh, good luck with that. It's impossible. But it's about being in the moment, being present. So, as I said, you do what you can to minimize the distractions around you. It's, you know, often you pick someplace quiet. Um, even if it's done in a group, everybody will sit facing the wall, for example. And you don't close your eyes because you don't want to fall asleep or, you know, tempt that whole thing. Um, but you, you fix your gaze and you focus on your breath, you know, whatever it takes to keep you in that moment so that as sensations or thoughts arise, you can recognize them and then let them go you don't dwell on them. So hence I said this idea of quieting the mind, good luck. It's more or less acknowledging that, you know, oh, my nose itches, fine. You know, did I turn the gas off on the stove? Yes, let it go. You know, things like that. So it's it's hard for people at first. As, as a new student of Soto Zen, often you start with 15, 20 minute, maybe even 10 minute um, seated meditation or zazen sessions, but you work your way up, and I've seen people do it for hours um, with with very few breaks. I myself have done uh, seven and ten day retreats where most of the time is spent um, sitting in zazen, again trying to be in the moment. Do they build a lot of extra walls in places like that? If they have a lot, big crowd, do they need to? build extra walls for people to sit at? <laughs> well, you just need four good ones and people learn to scrunch up. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I wrote a whole book about spiritual practices for Gnostics. Uh, you know, if you want to check that out, you can just Google it or whatever. But um, I, uh, some of my favorites are the kind of Christian contemplative. And, and we've mentioned, uh, we mentioned Centering Prayer a little bit here. And... Um, I think that somebody who is uh, interested in Buddhist meditation would find uh, very uh, would, would recognize centering prayer uh, quite readily as um, mm -hmm. a compatible tradition, and and I, mm -hmm. I like it quite a bit. It's it's kind of my my go to practice. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of other interesting things that are uh, that might seem on the surface to be a uh, Buddhist or even a Hindu kind of a practice. The um, Hesychast tradition comes to mind, where and the Jesus prayer specifically, where somebody will chant this thing that it's almost mantra-like. You know, uh, Lord Jesus yes. Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I think that if you ask somebody who is an uh, Orthodox uh, Hesychast. Uh, I think that they would probably disagree with the characterization of it as a mantra, but I, I think it is kind of similar and, and uh, you know, serves a similar function. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it's funny you say that because um, both Centering Prayer and Jesus Prayer are favorite practices of mine, um, specifically um, the Jesus Prayer. You know, I find myself doing that on buses, airplanes, mm -hmm. you know, you name it, um, it goes with me. But I never say, you know, I never refer to it as Jesus prayer. I'll say something like I'm doing my, you know, Gnostic Japa. <laughs> and, you know, Japa being a, 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 you know, reference to the Hindu practice mm -hmm. of saying the mantra with beads. Yeah. So I say my Jesus prayer with beads. But, you know, whether you want to see the similarities or not, you know, the bottom line is you still are repeating something, and the purpose is to keep you in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things, again, with, with seated zazen is people think that um, Zen Buddhists, that's all they do. They sit and meditate. The meditation is the easiest part. If you can do it on a cushion, 
while sitting there at a wall with nothing to distract you, now try being in the moment while you're making dinner, mm-hmm. you know, or you're working at the office, um, whatever it may be, try doing it there when you're surrounded by distractions. So it's sort of like the beginner's path is to start with the meditation. And I see the same thing for me, which we said with, with the centering prayer is it's easier when you're sitting there. Now take it out into the world with you. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing is true of mantras and chanting. Like I said, I love to keep my beads on me. I've been using the same prayer rope now for goodness. So many years, it's literally falling apart. (laughs) But it goes with me everywhere I go because it's harder to sit on the bus and do it or harder to sit on an airplane in turbulence while they're serving drinks to do it um, than it is when I'm sitting at home in front of my little altar. Mm-hmm. So again, it, it it's all teaches you a certain degree of self-discipline. Yeah, I, it's, that's great. So um, I, we have to wrap things up here because we're out of time, but uh, that is some some great advice and some kind of next level stuff for people who are out there doing some spiritual practice and playing the home game along at home with us. So uh, <laughs> check that out. Again, Deacon John, now Father John, after as, when this comes out, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. And, uh, you know, we always love having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. And um, for, uh, well, I guess... For those of you who are watching this uh, now, the conclave has already happened, so I guess we can stop advertising for that. But it'll uh, it'll it'll be great, and I look forward to seeing you uh, both here in my neck of the woods in a couple of weeks. That'll be great. It's be yes, hope, hopefully I've seen you there by now. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> if all goes well. Anyway, See, season three—that's a wrap. Season three, I guess. Sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> 76 podcast episodes in there. All right. Anyway, so uh, I, I think that our music is looping because we've talked so long. But anyway, uh, that'll be it for tonight. And for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. Thank you.